You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Dale said, we're, we're talking about the financial squeeze that we are experiencing uh, because of inflation. Uh, the experts had predicted that August was going to be the big turnaround month. Inflation numbers were going to at least peak and begin to turn around. But last week, the August numbers came in, and inflation is still growing. So we're all feeling the squeeze. Uh, no matter where you are in your own resource uh, allocation, I don't know of anyone who hasn't had their decision-making altered, at least to some degree, by the reality of inflation. Now, the government is scrambling to address the problem, but the focus of this four-part series is not on what is going on outside of us, but what God is doing in our lives and how we can be a part of that. What is God doing in the middle of financial squeeze? God has a long-standing offer to help us in our need. It's found in Isaiah 46, verse 4. This is what it says. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I've made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. So God says, I am he. Who is he? I am the one that will sustain you, and I'll help you. I will rescue you. I'll carry you. He says, I made you. You had nothing to do with that. You are not a self-made individual. You have life because I have given you life. We had absolutely nothing to do with our birth. And just like our birth, God is implying that throughout our lives, we're going to face situations that we really can't, by our own willpower, affect or change. Things beyond our control. And God says, in those times, I will carry you. I'll sustain you. I'll rescue you. But there are conditions on God's offer to help. And in this series, we are looking at four of the conditions that are attached to God's offer to help, particularly when we face financial challenges. Last week, we began by looking at the first condition, and that is carry my load. God invites us to be responsible, carry our own load. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the second condition, which is to choose contentment. Now, you will not hear that message from our culture or anyone in government to choose contentment. Last month, the government passed the Inflation Reduction Act. What's the plan? Well, it's complex, like most acts of Congress are, but it carries with it two long-standing government policies. The basic approach of this bill is to, number one, raise taxes, and number two, increase spending. It's a common approach. God's plan is very different than that. God's plan actually calls for a reduction of spending to get within the lines of contentment whenever finances are tight, and an increase in contentment. He sees this as an opportunity for us to address contentment. Now, what does it mean to be content? Well, the root of the word is kind of the first key. The root of the word contentment is content. So if you want to know if you're content, Begin, first of all, by asking the question, what content do I have? What do I have in my possession? What what am I driving? Where am I working? Where am I living? What relationships do I have? What, What is true of my life right now? And then the second question is, am I okay with what I have right now? Or do I need, not just want, but do I need more emotionally to be happy or satisfied? or free of fear. Contentment is the condition of accepting 
what it is that God has given you, accepting your current condition in life. So the question that we have to ask all of ourselves is, are we content? How do you know? How do you know whether you're content or someone else is content? Can you see it on their face? Do content people carry kind of a a placid smile or a calm look about them? Not necessarily. Contentment isn't something that you can carry on your face. It's not something you see physically obvious. And that's because contentment resides in our heart. And in a way, contentment is really more like a secret that we know and are convinced of that is driving our contentment. It's a secret. The Apostle Paul writes about this great secret in the New Testament book of Philippians. He had been arresting for, arrested rather for telling people about Jesus, and he was now awaiting a trial, an appeal before Caesar, and he was waiting in a prison cell in Rome. And the church in Philippi, which is why the book is called Philippians, this letter had been written to that church in Philippi, they had sent him a gift in prison to help him. And so he writes this letter in part to thank them. And then after he's thanked them, he says this in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. He said, I'm not saying this, I'm not, I'm not writing this and saying thank you because I'm in need. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So Paul is doing two things in these verses. He's first thanking them for their their generous gift to help him while he's in prison. And then secondly, and he's taking more time to explain this, he's making it clear that while he was grateful for their gift, he really didn't need that gift in order to be okay. He appreciated it, but he didn't need it. Now, when Paul says he knows what it is to be in need... He's not talking about being in need here in Orange County. He's talking about being in need 2,000 years ago in a Roman prison. Being in prison in Rome is not like being in prison now in this nation. A prisoner's survival often depended on the food and the clothes, in some cases the medicine, given to the prisoners by family or friends. So Paul really did rely on the gifts from people like this church in Philippi to survive in this Roman prison while he awaited an appeal to Caesar. So how then did Paul learn, as he refers to it, the secret of contentment? How did he learn that while he was in prison? Well, he's implying that the the learning began long before he was in prison. He learned it by experience (coughs) over time. And he goes on to describe the polar opposites of his experience, his life experience. He describes the wide range of experiences that have taught him contentment. When he was in need, like he is now, he has learned by experience to trust God with his current situation, and he has actually learned to be at peace when he's in need. On the other side of the spectrum, when he's had plenty, He has learned not to get too attached to the resources. Now, you can debate which one is a harder lesson. I think they're both full of challenges. And it requires this wide spectrum to really learn the secret of contentment. Now, because Paul said he learned this, that implies he didn't start out content. None of us automatically arrive at contentment. It is not a natural human condition. 
He had to learn it. We have to learn it too. How? Through the ups and downs of life. You know, life, we wish life was kind of just an ongoing, it gets better and better and better kind of trajectory. But that is not the human experience. The human experience is, oh, it's getting better and better, and oh, no, it's getting horrible. Now it's getting better, and it will be better forever. No, it won't. And you just go up and down and up and down. There's higher highs and lower lows, but it's really a roller coaster. Life is just a series of ups and downs. Why does God allow that to happen? It's because that's God's classroom of contentment. The ups and downs of life are an opportunity designed to free us from the roller coaster of our circumstances. It's designed for us to say, you know what, I'm, I'm getting nauseated by this roller coaster. I would love to be free of the emotional highs and lows and ups and downs. I want to learn contentment. Now, I wish the secret of contentment was something like a formula that you could memorize or maybe statement you could chant and automatically your heart would be at peace. But that's not the way contentment is learned. Contentment requires practice over time. And like any thing you have to practice over time, just because you are growing contentment doesn't mean you're always going to grow. If you stop practicing, you'll stop growing in contentment. So again, the question, are you, am I content with our current financial situation? Now, to be clear, contentment doesn't mean that you never want another raise and you have no ambition to grow your income. That's not contentment. That's complacency. Last week, we talked about the need to take responsibility for your own life. God has given you responsibility, and I challenged all of us, especially in the financial squeeze, to think through how can you excel in your responsibility? How can you grow in what you're responsible for, what God has assigned to you? in your daily and weekly life? How can you expand maybe and, and take on more responsibility? Because those things usually are attached to greater income. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So contentment doesn't look forward and say, I don't want another thing. Contentment says, I'm okay right now. I may have plans. I may want to expand my responsibility. I may want to increase my income. That's fine. But if that doesn't work out, I'm okay. I don't need that. So here's a, a working definition of contentment that I think is helpful. To be content is simply to be free of external circumstances, to get off the roller coaster. I mean, life is going to continue to go up and down, but your emotions don't have to. You can be free of external circumstances. So are you free from the financial condition, or are you a slave to it? Let me ask you some diagnostic questions, and this is just for you. Do you have joy apart from money? Or do your emotions rise and fall with your income or your net worth? When it goes down, are you in a bad mood automatically? When it goes up, are you happy and your outlook on life is great? Can you sleep when money is tight? Or does it consume your sleeping hours and a lot of your waking hours? Is money what makes your day good or bad? 
So let's be honest. Money has us by the throat. We are attached to it. It is a struggle to be free of its grasp on us. So if you are squeezed right now financially, then you're in the contentment classroom. You may not have enrolled for the class. God put you in it. And God wants you to learn the secret. Okay, so then what's the secret? Paul says it. Here it is. The secret of contentment is this. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's the secret. Now, that is not just some motivational speech or some mantra that you repeat to yourself when things are hard. This phrase is a summary of the secret of the Christian life. The secret of the Christian life, the essence of it, is God is in us. His power is at work in us as we face the challenges of life. You see, whenever a person decides to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and receive the forgiveness of sins, and they decide also to follow him, follow him as Lord, that's one decision, two sides on the same coin. What happens at that point is the mighty power of God enters into that person's life. This is an activity on the part of God through us. You see this theme repeated many times in the New Testament portion of the Bible. Let me just give you three examples. Philippians 1.6 says, He, speaking of God, who began a good work outside of you, around you, adjacent to you, no, in you, He will power, He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So if you're wondering if you can keep going and you're looking just at your willpower, probably not. Paul says, I'm confident that it's not up to me. It's not up to you. God is at work on the inside, moving me forward to this point of completion. The next one, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works, where? In you. To will and to act according to his good purpose. This is an amazing passage. This is not just flop down in a wheelbarrow, and God will push you through life. No, this is, uh, you work at it so hard that you're trembling, and, and, and you do this with intensity. This is serious work, but you also do, do it knowing that, you know, what's really happening is while you're working, God is working in you too, working you to want to do the right thing, and then giving you the power to do the right thing. Without that, you and I wouldn't have a chance. Next one, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him, speaking of God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work, where? Within us. That's why God can do more through us than we can do ourselves. Now, if God's power is actively at work in me to strengthen me, like it was with Paul, you know what that means? I can handle Anything that this life throws me. I can handle anything that comes my way. If I'm Paul, I can be content in a Roman prison. But this is not what most people think the Christian life is. Most people think the Christian life is some kind of moral deal that we make with God. Even people who are Christians tend to think this way or tend to at least operate this way. 
Here's the deal that we think we're making with God. The deal is this. I keep God's rules, and he makes my life better. That's what most people think. That's why when things get bad, people think, I don't understand why God is doing it, because the deal has been broken. I keep God's rules, and in exchange for doing what he wants me to do, then he'll give me some help with what I want him to do. That's the way we deal with each other. It's an exchange, a deal. The problem is, that is not the deal that God has written. We wrote that. And then we forge God's name to it. The truth is, God doesn't do deals. What he does is he makes an offer. Here's the offer that God gives us. I'll forgive your sin because of Jesus Christ. I'll forgive your sin, and then I'll use my power to help you through the difficulties. That's the offer. God's power is in us if we accept that offer. God's power is now not out in front of us, clearing a path of ease, making the road as level as it possibly can be. There's still peaks and valleys. He will straighten some things out, but that's not his primary work. His primary work is in us. That's the big secret. And even if you know the secret, you'll forget the secret when life gets hard, and you've got to learn it again. That's because knowing the secret and learning it are two very different things. We learn the secret by experience, by going through hard things and seeing God's power at work helping us. That's how we learn it. And when you experience it, you don't forget it as easily because you've experienced it. This is not just words on a page. This is, I have experienced this. Now, there's two ways that we learn contentment. There's two parts to the curriculum. The secret is God's power in us. The curriculum is how the kinds of experiences that God uses so that we learn this. The two kinds of ways we learn it are planned contentment and unplanned contentment. This is what we're going to look at with the remainder of our time. Let's begin with planned contentment. These are the learning experiences that you put on your calendar. You plan to be content because it's in your schedule. Now, the secret of contentment the Apostle Paul writes about is in the book of Philippians. Those are the verses we just looked at. The curriculum of contentment that we're going to look at now is in the book of 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul is also writing. He's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he gives us a little more detail about the curriculum, how it is that God teaches us this secret. And he starts out in 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. He's talking about the average person. And he says about the average person, these are people who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. These are the deal makers. This is the baseline position that most people approach God from. They make a deal with God. They say, God, okay, I'll, I'll do your thing because it's going to help my bottom line. A lot of people have rejected God because God hasn't kept up his end of the deal, a deal he never wrote. And they're mad at God. 
But the truth is they wrote a deal, signed their name to it, and God hasn't agreed to it. But that's what most people think. If I'm going to be godly, it's because there's something in it for me. Godliness is the means to financial gain. That's what most people think. Paul goes on in verse 6, and the first word is but, and it's a very important but. What he's basically saying is, that's not true. This is true. But the truth is, godliness with contentment is a great gain. The biggest gain in life, Paul is saying, is to be found not through financial gain, but learning how to do life God's way. That's godliness. God reference, learning to obey him, and learning to be content. If you're growing in those two, you're in, you're in better shape than you realize, than most people are. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you, refer, you refuse every raise and you decide that you're never going to gain financially, that that's bad. No. What this means is that your primary focus is on growing in your obedience to God, your godliness, and in accepting the amount of money and the current situation you find yourself in now growing in contentment. Those are the two things you really want to grow in. And you don't just intend to do this. Like everything we are really serious about, it shows up on our calendar. We plan to grow in these areas. Practically, this involves a budget. That's what a budget is, basically, is it's a future plan. If you're budgeting in October, whether it's your time or your money, there's dates on your October calendar because you've decided that you're going to spend time doing that. There's categories in your October budget because you've planned that we're, I'm going to spend this much on this category and no more. Budget is just an advanced plan. And so practically this means you budget your money and your time to grow in both godliness and contentment. No budget, no growth. Now, godliness and contentment, let's just be clear, first of all, these are not just two items on a list. They go together. That's why they have the word with. It's godliness with contentment. They're a pair. They, they need each other. It, it's because, well, we need God's help to be content. If we're not growing in godliness, we're not getting God's extra help in growing in contentment. And we won't grow in godliness if we're mad at God because of our life situation. If we're not growing in contentment, we're going to have a hard time growing in godliness. These things are linked together. You can't be mad at God about your life and growing in godliness because you're mad. You're discontent. Now, in a financial squeeze, our tendency is to reverse this growing in godliness and contentment. We jettison godliness and contentment. Our tendency, whenever we're in a financial squeeze, is not to scale back and live within our means. No, we in America, we are a consumer-driven society. 70% of our gross domestic product is simply buying stuff. So when things get tight, what happens? Personal debt goes up in order to maintain our lifestyle. We don't say, oh, oh, I'm in the classroom of contentment. I better dial it back and be content with what I currently have. Oh, no. We continue to live our lifestyle, and if necessary, we will add to our debt. 
That's the American way. And we won't grow in godliness either because life is more precious now than ever. So whatever time we were going to spend to grow in godliness, we need now to manage the financial challenges that we're facing. So when the squeeze comes, the automatic response is jettison godliness, jettison contentment, and maybe think about it later. So if we're going to budget, we have to first understand what it means to budget. Here's the definition of budgeting. To budget is to decide in advance how you're going to allocate your resources. That's all it is. How are you going to allocate your resources? So let's look first at godliness, and then we'll look at contentment. How do you budget for godliness? You decide in advance to spend some of your time and some of your money on godly activities. That's what it means. Activities that help you learn God's ways and connect with other people that will challenge you to grow in God's ways. Some of these are, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard them. So you budget, you, you put on your calendar, if necessary, time to get with God daily, to spend time in his word and time in prayer. That's you saying every day, God, I, I want to pull out your compass and I want to get my life lined up. You carve out time to make church a priority. Or about time maybe to join a group where you can get to know some other people can help you. And there are other op opportunities to grow in godliness. For me, 23 years ago, it was 23 years ago, I, I was invited to go to a conference in Fort Worth. It was led by Harold Bullock, who is the, was the senior pastor of the church that God had used to begin to really change my life. And it came in an awful time. I was busy. I didn't have a lot of extra money. I was going to have to pay a plane ticket at that point. It was like $1,000 just to fly to Fort Worth. And I was thinking, there is no way I'm going to do this. But there was something in me, you know, just sensed, I, I, I should do this. And so I went. And that was the first of what turned out to be an annual conference called the Wisdom Conference. And I went to every one of those. And it was almost never convenient, and it cost me money. So I budgeted for it in the future years after that first one. And that annual trip, I'll just say honestly for me, that annual trip for me has been probably the most significant contribution to my Christian growth of anything I've done. This is unlike any, I've been to a bunch of great conferences, it's unlike any conference I'd ever been to. And for years, I have tried to get Harold to do the conference here at Seabreeze, to take it on the road. And it just never worked out until this year. This is that Relevate conference we've been talking about. I mean, Dale said I'm one of the keynote speakers. I'm talking once. I mean, let's just be clear. I'm window dressing on this thing. Harold is going to be presenting. And the, con the content is how to make emotions work for you. And I, I know I'm laying it on heavy because I've often thought, man, I just wish everyone else could sit in here and be a part of this. And so I'm going to lay it on heavy and just say, I highly recommend that you make plans to take the time. And I know it's Thursday, you know, Friday or Wednesday night and Thursday and Friday. So if you have a real job, you know what that means? Vacation time. 
this will be better in Hawaii. I mean, it'll be real different than Hawaii. <laughs> but in terms of godliness, Proverbs 4, 7 is a verse that's challenged me throughout my life. It says, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. I love that. The beginning of wisdom is this. Decide you want some. <laughs> I'm tired of being stupid. I want to make better decisions in life. Okay, that's a start. Then what do you do? Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Then you have to pay the price for it. And this is an opportunity. If you decide to go to this, it'll cost you. Not a bunch. It'll cost you more in vacation time than conference fee. And I know you may not be able to go, so I understand that. But if you can, this is one of opportunity, many opportunities that God sends our way to grow in godliness. And we have to plan for it. We have to budget for it. So we have to budget for godliness, but we also have to budget for contentment. How do you do that? Well, that's more the traditional budget. You make a monthly financial plan that fits within the limit of what you earn. A budget is just simply a tool. A financial budget is simply a tool that allows you to plan to be content. And if you are spending, at the end of this month, you have a budget, and you're spending more money than you're earning, you know what that means? You were not content. What you are actually saying is, God, the resources you gave me this month, I didn't like. I, I didn't agree with the amount, so I upped it. I decided to spend more. And if you don't have a budget that tracks everything you spend, guess what's going to happen to your spending? Now, maybe not for you, but for most humans on the planet, spending just grows. You know, there's only three things you can do with your money. You can give it, you can save it, you can spend it. We usually don't need a plan to limit giving or saving. I still have not run across a person where I've thought, you know what? You got to get that giving in, in control, man. You are way too generous. I just, I haven't met that person. I've met a few people where I've thought, okay, I think you're saving too much. But most people, I, I also had to say, you know what? Stop saving so much. What we all struggle with is, ooh, the spending. You're out of control. That's why we need a budget. We don't need a plan to limit our giving or our savings. We need a plan to limit our spending. This is why using a budget is so unpopular. Recent Gallup poll said that only 30% of Americans are, use a budget. Only 30%. And then it had a little caveat. It said, even less, stick with it. It's like, well, I'd want to know that number too, but the, I guess they didn't ask that. Just do you stick with it? So they didn't publish that. Now, without a budget, it's hard to learn to be content because you don't know did I spend within the income that God granted? Now, if you're new to budgeting, just understand it takes time. It takes diligence, so don't get discouraged. If you've tried before and you're under the impression, I just can't do budgeting. It's like, okay, you haven't tried long enough. You're smart. You made your way here. You followed road signs. You stopped at stoplights. You can do a budget. You just don't want to. 
or you haven't tried it long enough. For my wife and I, it took three years for us to finally get a budget in place. And we have to keep tweaking it. But now we know at the end of every month, were we content? And we can plan to be content. Let me just throw up some budgeting tools. I'll put the screen up here just if you're new to this. This is just some you might want to. You can Google these, research these. I won't get into them. But one is you need a budget. Just Google that. These are different budgeting tools. Every dollar, that's Dave Ramsey's thing, which is pretty good. Mint, that's another one. So if you're looking for tools, take the time, take a look at these, and maybe, maybe look at others too. So that's planned contentment. If you don't plan for contentment, you won't be content. The next category is unplanned contentment. These are the learning experiences that invade your calendar. The other ones you put on your calendar. These are the ones you would not put on your calendar, but they invade. 1 Timothy 5, 6, 5 through 6 again says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And it goes on to talk about the unplanned kind. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. That's not just a fact. These words point to a story in the Bible of a man who lost everything. His name was Job. He was the richest man of his day. And then disaster struck. Unplanned. It was not on his calendar. And he chose contentment. This is what he says in Job 1, 20 through 22, after the devastation of losing so much. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head, sign of mourning, because some of what he lost was his children. Then he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. You'll never find a more amazing response than that. Why did Job respond that way? He said, well, I've learned. I've looked at the evidence. What's the evidence? God brought me into the world, Job says, with nothing. His birth is like every birth. A naked body and nothing else. Now this, Job says, isn't just a fact of life. This is a statement from God at the point of birth. And the statement is this. You see this? This is what really matters. This person with nothing added to them. The things they add to their life will not increase their value. But, of course, after a child is born, things are added to their life. They get clothes and shoes and toys, and as they grow, they get more expensive clothes and shoes and toys. And like Job, many acquire property and assets and businesses and spouses and families, and it's only natural for us to begin to think that as we add more to our life, our value is going up. We actually say our net worth is increasing. But that's just not the case. And in case we get confused at this point, God says, I'm going to make the same statement when you leave this life that I made when you entered it. You're going out with nothing. So what is the point of life? You get the chance to praise God, like Job did. So then what is the purpose of all the stuff that's added in the middle? Well, you need them, but you have to understand they're just the backdrop of life. They're kind of like props on a stage. You know, here's a picture of a, a theater, you know, and the props, they come and go. Sometimes they rise, sometimes they roll on and out. But they change. But the point is the story being told, not the props that come and go. We tend to wrap our hearts around the props. And so the, the honoring God story that is so important, we tend to forget it. So sometimes... God takes away the props to get us back on track to the storyline of praising Him, honoring Him. 
Now, with Job's amazing response in chapter 1, you'd think the book of Job is on track to be the shortest book in the Old Testament. I mean, drop the mic, amazing job, Job, move on. But it's a long book. It goes on for 42 chapters. Why? Job's friends come around to try to help him process his loss. I think they were good-hearted for the most part. But what happens is this causes Job to question why he's been singled out for loss. So as he talks to the guys, it's pretty clear. So you didn't lose anything? No. So this wasn't a global thing? This was just me? Yeah. That gets his mind going. You know, it's one thing to accept what God gives you. It's another thing to accept what God gives someone else if it's more than what he gave you. That's hard. So for 37 chapters, Job struggles because he compares himself to his friends. Comparison is the great destroyer of contentment. You can be completely content with your home until you visit someone else's home. (laughs) And on and on it goes. So Job demands answers. In chapter 38, God answers. Well, actually what he does is he asks Job a bunch of of questions. For four chapters, four, four chapters of questions. I'd encourage you to read this. These are some of the questions he asked Job. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Oh, you weren't there. Job, who decided the dimensions, the circumference of the earth, and the distance between the planets and from the sun that's essential to life? Did you do that? Oh, you didn't do the math on that? Oh, I thought you were, I thought you were the one that did that. Who set the borders of the coastline? Who said to the Pacific Ocean, stop there so there can be this place called Huntington Beach? It's not underwater. Did, did you draw the boundaries of the oceans? What about the lightning bolts? Did you, are you the one that sends those? Do they report to you and say, where would you like us to fall on the earth? Are you the one, Job, that determined all the unique creatures on earth and what they look like? And God basically is making the point where he's saying, well, since, Job, you did all of these amazing things, then I will await your correction about how I'm running the world. Job gets the point. Verse 1 through 3 of 42, Job says, then, the, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. The point that God is making through this is, like Job, we live in a world full of things that we don't understand. So live in that world and trust God. When my grandmother was 90, she told us that she'd found her life verse. And it's this verse in Philippians. That's why I can't read this verse, talk about this verse, without thinking or mentioning her. This was her life verse, she said. Philippians 4.11, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, what struck most of us strange is she chose her life verse at 90. Most people choose a life verse when they have most of their life in front of them. They're usually chosen early in life, but Grandma decided to identify her as late. Why? I'm not sure. She wasn't particularly verbal. But I, but I have my guess. She was blind for the last 10 years of her life, and she didn't understand why God had her still alive. At one point, last time I talked to her, I remember she said, Bevan, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. Sitting in this room by myself, blind. And, you know, she was from the generation that was highly productive, and she said, I'm of no use to anybody. 
That's hard. Ten years of darkness in that age. So I think contentment was getting harder and harder as she aged, sitting there in the dark. And I think she decided, I better get a life verse or I'm going to end poorly. I don't, I've been trying to honor God my whole life. I don't want to end wrong. And that's why she chose this verse. And what I've learned from her and what I've learned myself is contentment, therefore, isn't a one-time choice. You don't, you're not content today and then it's locked in. You, you have to decide over and over and over again, at least daily and some, several times throughout the day. Philippians 4, 12 through 13, again, says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your power to help. We certainly cannot do much on our own. We need your help. And when it comes to contentment, we're all over the map. We ride the roller coaster of the ups and downs of our finances and of our circumstances. And we would love to be free. God, I pray that you would help us. You would empower us to enroll in the classes of contentment and learn their lessons repeatedly. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.